Welcome to the Hope in the Hard Times sermon series. I preached this series of messages back in 2012 at the Metropolitan Bible Church, shortly after I'd gone through treatments for cancer. Now in 2020, as we face hard times related to the coronavirus, we at Heritage College and Seminary are re-releasing the sermon set, along with a companion study guide. As you dig deeper into God's Word, you will receive hope in the hard times. Well, today we come to the end of our Hope in the Hard Times series. Today we wrap it all up. Over the last months, we have been looking at some of the hopeful ways that God works in us and through us when life is hard on us. And what we've been seeing is that even when life isn't good, even when life isn't good, God is up to something that's good. He's working in the hard times. He's... uh, He's stretching and strengthening our character. We saw that as we started off. He's he's moving in closer. He's he's making our hearts more and more of his home, making himself feel more at home in our lives. He's causing us to slow down. Sometimes he maketh me to lie down, right? And he uses hard times to cause us to slow down and to be still and to know that he is God. Or he's he's changing our spiritual appetites. He's retraining our spiritual taste buds so we have a greater hunger for his truth and for his word. He uses hard times to do that. Or maybe he is revealing and dealing with some of the dark sides that are still inside of us. Or perhaps he's just teaching us to wait. To wait patiently and hopefully and expectantly on him. Sometimes he uses hard times to move us, to move us from misery to mission. He gives us a sense that even in the midst of what we're going through, he can use us in the lives of others. In fact, last week we saw that in that he sometimes uses us to forge together a fellowship of suffering so that we can give and receive his comfort to others. He's working in many, many ways. Well, today as we wrap up our series, we're going to look at one more. One more way that God works in hard times. And I think you could say we've saved the best till last. I mean, all of the ways that we've looked at are good, but this one's not just good. This one is glorious. In fact, it's so glorious that you could say that this one is out of this world glorious. It's so glorious that this is the one that the Apostle Paul said he focused on. Paul said when he was going through hard times, he kept his mind on this one. He focused on it, and it gave him hope, and it helped him hang on in the hard times. And it'll do the same thing for you and for me if we'll follow Paul's example on this, if we'll keep this one in focus. Today, we're going to see something that can give hope in the hardest of times because it reminds us of the best time that's still to come. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn with me to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be today in verses 18 through 25 of Romans chapter 8. One of the most beloved chapters in all the Bible. And this is a section in Romans 8 that sometimes gets overlooked, but it shouldn't because it's an amazing section. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. So join me there, Romans chapter 8. I want to talk to you today about the hope of glory about a a future that is literally glorious. That's the word that the Bible uses to talk about it. A glorious future. 
and how remembering that, hanging on to that, gives you hope in the hard times. Let me pray, and then we'll look at the scriptures together. Father, this morning, I I have felt over these last few days, and I, I say it again to you this morning, I feel inadequate, inept to be able to articulate the glory that that shines through these verses and the glory that is revealed in your word about the future you have planned for us. Lord, I I feel that my tongue just can't wrap itself around these words. I can't speak them. I, I don't know if there are words, but in your word, you have given us some clues, some glimpses, some glimmers of what's coming. And I'm praying that today you will, by your spirit, use your word to give us a better sight, insight, foresight of what's coming so that we would hold on to hope in the hardest of times. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8 is written to some Christians who are groaning. They are groaning under the weight of suffering. You ever groan? Do you ever feel like you're groaning under the weight of suffering? Well, if you do, if sometimes you just feel like you're groaning, then you need to hear what Paul says in these, in these verses. Pick it up in verse 18 and look what he says. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In that verse, Paul begins to give a message that is filled with hope. Essentially, what he's saying in that verse and the verses to follow is simply this. He's saying, hey, keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. Your groaning will one day give way to glory. He says, I want you to keep this in mind. I want you to keep this thought in mind, that one day, one day, your groaning will give way to glory. Your groaning will one day give way to glory. In in this verse, Paul talks kind of about our groaning and our glory. He talks about our present condition and our future hope. He talks about what's current in our lives and what's coming in our lives. And he contrasts the two. He compares the two. He says, hey, presently, we got a lot of suffering. Do you see that in verse 18? He says, I consider that our present sufferings. So Paul says the present time is marked by a fair share of suffering. But then he says, hey, but our future, it glimmers with glory. It shimmers with glory because he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's looking ahead. He says it will be revealed. It's not yet revealed, but there is a glory that will be revealed in us. By the way, did you notice he didn't just say will reveal to us as if we'll just see it. He says it will actually somehow be in us. We will will share in this glory. We will be glorious. So we're going to go from groaning to glory. Now you might read that and go, well, when's this going to happen? Bring it on. Let's not wait for this. When will this glory come? Well, he says it will happen when the glory is revealed in us. When's that going to be? Well, the, the answer that the Bible gives to that question is, is that glory will be revealed in us when Jesus returns for us, right? That's that's when the glory will come. The glory comes with Christ. And when he returns, then the glory that he brings will be revealed to us, but also in us. Let me read you a passage that makes that real clear. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. 
talks about how this glory will come with Christ and it will be revealed to us. Let me read for you. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Verse 21, Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Ah, that's when glory will be revealed in us, when Jesus comes back. So one day when Jesus returns, our groaning will give way to glory. Now in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, let me tell you a little bit more about that, about how this groaning gives way to glory. And he does it in a couple ways. Beginning with verse 19 in our passage, he talks about how the groaning of creation will give way to glory. So he's, he starts off generally, we're going to go from suffering to glory, and then in verses 19 to 22, he says, the groaning of creation will give way to glory. Listen, if you care about this planet, if you love kind of what you see around you, and that matters to you, you're, you, you need to know this planet has a glorious future. Let me read verses 19 to 22, and listen for how often the word creation shows up. Okay, that's speaking of the created world. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectations for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. When you look around at creation, when you look at creation, you're kind of struck by two things. On one hand, the creation you see around you is breathtakingly beautiful, right? I mean, it's grand. But on the other hand, that same creation is badly damaged. It's groaning. You ever watch uh, one of the episodes of the Blue Planet or Planet Earth or one of the National Geographic specials? Sometimes you watch those things and it takes your breath away with the, with the beauty that is built into creation. Maybe you see uh, kind of some of the life that's teeming in the oceans and the rivers or, or they show you kind of aerial shots of, of elephants migrating across the Serengeti or they show you close-up of these exotic birds that inhabit the Amazon rainforest and you see this and you just, it takes your breath away. It's like, wow. So that's one side of what we see in creation. But then, then sometimes maybe on the news or in a news magazine, you see a picture of, of sewage being poured into rivers or oil spills in our oceans. Or you hear of whole species that are becoming extinct on a regular basis. We're losing species. And it takes your breath away in another way. You realize creation is groaning. It's beautiful, but it's damaged. And by the way, the groaning of, of creation is not something new. Creation just didn't start groaning once the industrial age happened and we started having industrial pollution and oil spills. Creation has been groaning since the Garden of Eden. I know that because of what Paul writes in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. 
That's speaking of what God did when our first parents sinned. If you read Genesis chapter 3, you know that when Adam and Eve sinned, God judged them. But get this, he judged the creation because of them. And he subjected it to to frustration, it says here in verse 20. The word frustration, uh, same Greek word, is translated futility in Ephesians 4.17. It's like God made creation so that it just doesn't work right. There's a curse, as it were, on our earth. And that curse is because creation is now subject to decay. Did you notice how verse 21 talked about a bondage to decay? You see that? Creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Like you've never seen the earth as it was meant to be. Did you know that? Maybe you've been to the Rockies and you've seen it and you've just sat there and thought, man, what could be more beautiful? As beautiful as you've seen it, you've never seen it how it's meant to be. Because even that beautiful part is subject to decay. There's a bondage. So much that Paul says in verse 22 that it's like the creation is groaning. Did you see that? Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So since the Garden of Eden, all the way up to the present time, creation is sitting here groaning. And uh, ladies, you'll, you'll kind of get his picture, right? Uh, you'll, you'll resonate with his picture. He says it's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Some of you moms are going, man, I'm all over that one. I know what that is. I know those kind of groans. Sometimes people will, will say, why does God allow hurricanes? Why does God allow earthquakes? Why would a loving God allow a monsoon to come? Why would a loving God allow famine and drought and fires? Paul's answer is, it's because creation is going through contractions. It's in labor. And labor is a painful thing, and things aren't right. And it's like creation is is convulsing and contracting. And those contractions are felt with every earthquake and with every hurricane, with every monsoon, and with every famine. But Paul is saying, hey, listen, just like labor pains, which are painful, are not pointless, so creation's groaning. Its labor pains are not pointless. There's something coming. There is a delivery day coming. And when the delivery day comes for creation, it will be glorious. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back, it will actually bring a liberation for creation. Liberated from its bondage to decay, verse 21 says. If you read the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah or Zechariah, or if you read the last book in the New Testament, the revelation given to the Apostle John, you find out that when Jesus comes back, it ushers in some amazing changes for planet Earth. First of all, we're told there's going to be a a period of a thousand years. We call it the millennium. And during this thousand-year period where Jesus reigns on earth, like the earth is in a renaissance. It's in a beautiful, peaceful time. Why the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 says during that time, he says this, the wolf will lay down by the lamb and the calf will lay down by the lion. What's he saying? He's saying like even the animals will be in a better place. There will be kind of this peaceful coexistence. And after this thousand years, we're told in Isaiah, we're told in Revelation 21 and 22, that it will issue into a recreation, what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. 
It's like God comes to creation and he remakes it. He remodels it. He refreshes it. He resurrects it. He recreates it. And all of a sudden, creation is what it was meant to be. And then some. And it will be, the earth will now be a beautiful habitation. It will be our eternal home. That's helpful to remember. I just said earth will be our eternal home, the new earth. See, a lot of people, when they think about heaven, where do they think? They think clouds, right? Kind of the popular conception of heaven is that we're floating around in the clouds eating Philadelphia cream cheese (laughs) with a bunch of middle-aged angels. That's not the Bible's view of heaven. The Bible says that there will come a merging of heavens and earth. John in his vision sees the heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. See, heaven is where God is. And God is going to dwell in the new Jerusalem, which is on the new earth. And the creation will finally be all that God envisioned it to be, and then some. It'll be amazing. So creation, which is groaning now, is going to have glory then. You know, we as Christians should care about this planet. Genesis chapter 2 says we as humans have been given dominion over the planet. We're supposed to be caretakers of it. And I think there's a, a righteous and right place to be environmentally concerned, to do what we can to be good stewards. But I can tell you that we will never bring in the Garden of Eden by our efforts. We can't do it. God is the one who will recreate it. So we try to be good stewards now, and we hang on for the day when he makes it then. See, the groaning of creation will give way to glory one day. But Paul's not done. He's not just talking about creation. Look where he goes next in verse 23. He starts talking about how the groaning of Christians, the groaning of Christians will give way to glory. The groaning of Christians will give way to glory. Look at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So in verses 19 to 22, he says, creation's groaning, but it's going to give way to glory. And now verse 23, he says, hey, we Christians are groaning, but we're going to find ourselves experiencing glory. Did you see how he says we groan? Verse 23, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit. By the way, who does that refer to? We who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Who has the first fruits of the Spirit? Is that like everybody? Is that like all Christians? Is that like maybe a subset of Christians that are Spirit-filled Christians? Who has the first fruits of the Spirit? Well, Paul's already answered that question back in verse 9. Look back in verse 9 and you'll see his answer. He says, You, however, writing to all the people in the church of Rome, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So who has the first fruits of the Spirit? Everyone who belongs to Christ. Everyone who belongs to Christ. Do you belong to Christ? We say, well, how do you know if you belong to Christ? Well, you belong to Christ if you've given yourself to him. 
If you've come to say, Jesus, I have trusting in you to be my Savior. You died for me. You rose from the grave. And I'm here to trust in you, and I give myself to you. I surrender myself to you. I'm yours. Then you belong to Christ. And when you belong to Christ, you receive the gift of the Spirit. Jesus said that. In John chapter, John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus said, I will not, when I leave, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will send my spirit and he'll live inside of you. So here's one of the marks of a Christian. Every Christian, everyone who belongs to Christ, is united with Christ and is indwelt by the spirit. In verse 23, Paul says, we have the first fruits of the spirit, though. First fruits. What's that with first fruits? What do you think about that? Well, first fruits talks about the first gleanings of a greater harvest, right? So like when you get the first fruits of the grain or the first fruits off of the, of the apples, what the first fruits is, it's a promise that there is more to come, right? Like if you got the first, there's going to be more. And the Spirit of God is pictured as the first fruits. Like God gave you his Spirit to say, there's more for you. And I'm going to prove it to you by giving you my Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also called not just the first fruit, he's called the down payment, Ephesians 1.14. He's like the deposit. God said, I put down a down payment just to show you I'm serious about giving you the whole thing. So we have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian, but also you have groaning. That's what he says in verse 23. Even those who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly our adoption. Ajith Fernando, who was with us a few weeks ago, he says, we Christians in the West do not have an adequate theology of groaning. He said, the Bible says that if you're a Christian, you have the first fruits of the Spirit, you will groan. You will groan. That's part of life in this world. And to think that somehow you're going to be exempt from groaning is unrealistic, and it just sets you up for disillusionment. There's a sense in which Paul says, count on this. You're going to have some groaning, and you're going to be groaning because you know there's more to come, and you're longing for the glory to come. In fact, Paul, in verse 23, gives you a glimpse of what the glory is that you're groaning about. He describes it in two ways. Look at verse 23. He talks about our future glory in terms of waiting for our adoption as sons. That's the first one. And then the redemption of our bodies, that's the second one. That's what we're groaning for. We're groaning to say, I want my adoption as sons, and I want the redemption of my body. Let, let's talk about those one at a time. Let's start with adoption as sons. Paul says that one of the things we Christians groan for is our future adoption as sons and daughters. Now, you may hear that and go, wait a second, that's weird. I thought we already were adopted into God's family. And that's true. We already have been. In fact, if you look back at verse 15, chapter 8, you'll find out you've already received the spirit of adoption. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. That's the same word for adoption there, sonship, spirit of adoption. And by him, by the spirit, you cry, Abba, Father. So when you became a Christian. When you belong to Jesus, he puts his spirit inside of you and he adopts you into his family. So you already have, in a sense, been adopted. You're part of God's family. But get this, there is still part of your adoption that is future. 
some of your adoption has already passed. You're, you're, you're part of God's family, but there's part of your adoption that's future. Now, at this point, it might be helpful to know something about how they did adoption back in Paul's day because he's using the picture of adoption out of his own culture. A little different than ours. Here's what happened. Back in Paul's day, adoption worked like this. If you adopted a child into your family, they, they were adopted in the sense they became one of your children. But get this, it was not until they became of age, till they moved into a certain time when they became adults, that they received their full rights of adoption, namely their inheritance. When they were a minor, you can read about this in the book of Galatians. When they're a minor, he says, we're kind of like slaves. But when they became of age, then they are placed as sons. They become adopted. Now, what Paul is saying is this. You've already received your adoption into the family if you've belonged to Jesus. But you know what's coming? Your inheritance. You haven't gotten that yet. In fact, if you look at verse 17, he talks about if we are children adopted into God's family, then we are heirs. So you've got this inheritance, but you've not received it yet. And that part of your adoption is future, and Paul says you're groaning for it. Like, oh, I can hardly wait till I get that inheritance. I'm longing for that. Now, your inheritance is kept for you in heaven. That's what it says in 1 Peter 1.3. It says, it's kept in heaven where it can't be stolen or fade or can't be ruined. But one day, you are going to receive that inheritance when Jesus comes back. And glory is revealed, not just to you, but in you. And you'll receive the full inheritance that God has planned. You say, well, what's the inheritance going to be like? Like, do we know what the inheritance is going to be like? And the Bible says, yeah, we know a lot about that. But Paul here only focuses on one part of your inheritance. Look at the last thing he says in verse 23. He talks about our inheritance as the redemption of our bodies. Do you see that at the end of verse 23? We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says, hey, here's the part of the inheritance I want you to focus on. You're going to get a new body. Your body will be redeemed. Now, we saw earlier from Philippians 3, 20 and 21 that the new body you get will be like Christ's resurrected glorious body. So you're going to get a new glorious body that is like Jesus' resurrected body, part of your inheritance. Now, now let's just think about that for a second. You're going to get a body that is untouched by sickness and suffering. You're, the, the new body that God has for you, it cannot be tarnished by sickness and suffering. Revelation 21 verse 4 says that in heaven there is no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more death. You will receive a body that is incorruptible, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It can't be touched by sickness. And that means that in your new body you never have to worry about coronary problems. You never have to worry about cancer You'll never have to worry about Alzheimer's. You won't have to worry about crippling uh, things that happen in your limbs or blindness in your eyes or hard of hearing in your ears. You won't grow old. Age will not take away from you. It'll be glorious. But that's not the best part. You see, in your resurrected body, not only will you have a body that's untouched by sickness, it will also be a body that is untouched by sin. Like, you'll never struggle again with sins with your body. 
In this body, we struggle. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, when Paul talks about groaning, he's mostly talking about the fact that we groan because we're sick of sinning. That's the flow of Romans 6, 7, and 8. In Romans 6, 6, he talks about this body of sin. He's like, I, I got so much stuff going on in my body that just is wrong. Romans 7, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to, to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. One day I'm going to get a body that has no muscle memory for sin. You know what muscle memory is? Muscle memory is an amazing thing that happens in your body. It's like if, if you haven't ridden a bike for decades, or if you haven't swung a golf club for years, and you get on a bike, what happens? You kind of, you can ride that thing. Even though you haven't ridden for years, your muscles somehow remember kind of the things you do. Or you pick up a golf club after you haven't played for decades, what do you do? You slice that thing like you used to slice that thing, right? <laughs> your body remembers how to do that. In other words, your body has some kind of a muscle memory. Spiritually speaking, your body has a muscle memory for sin. Like you may have cleaned up your language years ago, and then all of a sudden, it's like your tongue remembers all those blue streak words you used to say. Where did that come from? Or you haven't pilfered anything in years, and all of a sudden you'll kind of look at home and you thought, you know, I took that from work today, and that doesn't belong for me. What was going on with me? It's like there's this muscle memory for sin. But when you get your new body, it not only will be untouched by suffering, it will be untouched by sin. It will have no muscle memory for sin. You will be like God meant you to be. Johnny Erickson was interviewed a while back, and they said, Johnny, you've lived in a wheelchair all your life, pretty much, since you were a young girl. What are you looking forward to in heaven? And she said, I'm looking forward to not having this wheelchair. Then she said, choked up, she said, you know what I'm looking forward to more? Not having to sin. She got it. She's groaning for the redemption of her body. Now, here's the deal. Let's bring it back to hope. Paul is writing to people who need hope, and he's saying this, Keep this in mind. I want you to keep this in your mind, that your groaning will one day give way to glory. Keep this in mind. Keep thinking about this. In verse 18, that's what Paul says he's doing. Look at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I consider. Paul uses there a present tense verb, which speaks of ongoing action. It's almost like he's saying, I keep thinking. I keep considering. I, in an ongoing way, I'm considering this. And the word he uses there for consider, the Greek word, has an accounting flavor to it. Some of you are accountants, so you'll, you'll get off on this. His, the word has kind of an accounting feel, often when it's used. So it, it has the idea that you kind of add things up. And so Paul says, you know what I do? I kind of get a ledger out, and on one side of the ledger, I write down all the liabilities I have now, all the suffering, all the hurts, all the pains. And then on the other side of the ledger, I write all my assets, all that I have coming, future glory, new creation, new body. And Paul says, and then I compare the two sides of the ledger. And you know what? There is no comparison. What I have coming is so much better than what I have currently. That this groaning is going to give way to glory. And Paul says, I keep my mind on that. I keep thinking about that. 
I add it up over and over again. Sometimes the groaning is so hard and I have to say, listen, no, 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 keep this in mind. Your glory is better than your groaning. Paul says, I come back to it again and again. And as he does, it gives him hope. It gives him hope. In fact, that's how he ends our passage in verses 24 and 25. Look where he goes next in verse 24. He starts talking about hope. He starts talking about hope. Hope in the hard times. Verse 24, for in this hope, this hope of future glory, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Do you see how he talks about hope, hope, hope? After he's thinking about going from groaning to glory, he says, that gives me hope. You could put it this way. In verses 18 to 23, Paul says, keep this in mind. Your groaning will one day give way to glory. And now in verses 24 and 25, he says this. So because of that, keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. Because God's glorious future is worth the wait. God's glorious future is worth the wait. So keep hope alive. And he tells you in verses 24 and 25, two things that you got to remember about hope if you're going to keep it alive. First in verse 24, hope takes faith. Hope requires faith. It takes faith. Do you see that in verse 24? For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? In other words, hope by its very nature takes faith because you don't have it yet. You are hoping for it, which means you have to believe for it. You don't yet see it. Verse 24, who hopes for what he already has? Who hopes for what he sees? That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We haven't seen it yet, but we hope for it, and that takes faith. You don't hope for something once you already have it. Like if I were to tell you, I hope one day I get to live in Ottawa, you'd probably say to me, why are you hoping for that? You already do. But if I said to you, I'm hoping one day I'm going to live on the new heavens and the new earth, then you say, okay, I can see why you'd hope for that, because you, you don't have that yet. Hope takes faith. And then in verse 25, the second thing, hope takes endurance. Hope takes endurance. Look at verse 25. If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Like we keep, we keep hanging on. Hope cannot be a fickle thing. It's not a short-lived thing. It's strong. It's sinewy. It's enduring. It, it takes perseverance and and it takes faith that endures. And Paul says, you know, sometimes when I'm groaning the most, I got to remember the glory. And when I remember the glory, I hope in that. And the way I keep it alive is I keep my faith in that. I believe that God's going to make good on his promise. He's given me the first fruits in his spirit. He's going to give me the full harvest. And I keep hope alive by enduring. I'm not giving up on this hope. I keep what's coming in my mind, and it keeps hope alive. In 1979, at the end of uh, Christmas time, I went as a university student to the Urbana Missions Conference in Urbana, Illinois. Flew out of San Francisco, where I was living near there with my family. Flew to Chicago, Illinois, and we made it to Urbana. A marvelous conference. It ends on New Year's Eve. You have communion with 17,000 people that year on New Year's Eve. What a great way to start 1980. Well, then the group of us that went, we got on a flight to go back to San Francisco uh, the next day or so. 
And as our plane got next to San Francisco, the pilot came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, we got some bad news. We are fogged in in San Francisco, so we're going to try to get you to Sacramento, which was somewhat nearby. And a little bit later, he said, ladies and gentlemen, we got bad news. Sacramento's fogged in, so we're going to have to go further south. Well, we landed that night in LAX, Los Angeles, which is a good chunk. It's like Ottawa to Toronto, it's San Francisco to LA. So we landed in LA with about 50,000 of our closest friends whose planes also got diverted, and everybody landed in LA. And it was chaotic. So we were with this little band of like six or seven of us waiting in this crowded terminal, trying, everyone wanted flights to San Francisco, and we were stuck. Now, this was before the days of ATM cards, so you just couldn't get money. And I didn't have a credit card, so what we had in our pocket was all we had. Well, the hours stretched on, and they couldn't get us on the first day. So we had to spend the night sleeping in the terminal. And then things got disappointing. At one point, they said, you have a standby ticket, and we're loading the plane. Get on. So we all rushed onto the plane. We sat on the tarmac for about two hours, and they said, ah, bad news. The fog rolled back into San Francisco, so you have to deplane. So we got off the plane again. And then I think I just finally, my body succumbed, and I started getting sick, and I started to get this fever. And I was laying there in the terminal because there were no seats, and we were fogged in, and I wasn't sure how we were going to get home, and it was a pretty difficult scenario. But you know, during that time, I kept thinking about my home. And I knew that my mother and father were, were want, want me to get there. And I knew that when we ever got to San Francisco, my dad would be there with the car, and he'd be driving me, and I thought about my own bed at home. And I thought about, someday, I'm going to make it to that bed. And hanging on to that, just it gave me a sense that, you know, God's going to somehow get me there. Well, the next day, we, we were put on a flight. We made it in, and sure enough, my dad and mom were there, and they drove me home, and I got to collapse in my own bed. As I thought about that, what kept hope alive was the certainty of my hope of going home. Sometimes in this life, it feels like you're just stuck in the terminal. You're terminally stuck. And it feels like you're running out of resources and everything's fogged in. Maybe you're even getting sick. You're groaning. How do you keep hope alive? You remember, you keep in mind that this groaning that you have going now is nothing comparing to the glory that's coming. Because one day your father will meet you and he will usher you into the place he's prepared for you. And you will be home. And it will be glorious. And Paul says, listen, listen, keep this in mind, and it will help you keep hope alive. So are you groaning today? Are you pretty sick of being stuck in the terminal hard times that you're facing? Can I tell you, some of that groaning is going to last with you as long as you live on this planet. But there's coming a day, a new day. And when that day comes, it will be glorious. Paul says, you want to keep hope alive in the hard times? Never, never lose sight of that day. Hang on to it. Father, this morning, as we finish up this series, we just say to you, please help us to remember where we're headed. Please help us to remember that you as our Heavenly Father have put the down payment, the first fruits of your spirit in our lives. And you've promised us that one day we will gain the whole inheritance that you and your grace have planned for us. And when we feel stuck 
and when we feel sick, and when we feel fogged in, and when we are groaning, help us with the eyes of faith to see what's coming, and help us to keep hope alive, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about online courses at Heritage College and Seminary, visit our website at discoverheritage.ca or visit our personal website at rickandlindareed.com.